News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm producer Alex Brooklyn, and this is the first in two episodes focused on the upcoming election for Manhattan District Attorney. We're going to dive in and get specific with the candidates, focusing on what the new DA could and should and will mean for our city. Today, we're joined by our hosts, Harry Siegel. Hello. And Professor Christina Greer. Hello. And our candidates today are Tahani Abushi, Liz Crotty, Diana Florence, and Assemblymember Dan Court. Thanks, Alex. And thank all of you for joining us for this special Who? DA FAQ episode of FAQ NYC. We're going to ask about a half dozen questions that each of you will have a turn to answer. Start alphabetically and then rotate the order with no opening or closing statements and uh, just try to give specific answers. After each round of answers, if any of you have directly addressed another candidate, we'll give that candidate 30 seconds or so to respond. You're all Zoom super pros by now, and this is your time, so let's jump right in. What do you see as prosecutors' role in promoting public safety, and how specifically would your office deal, or should it be dealing, with the massive increase in gun violence over the past year, uh, the 45% rise in murders, 100% rise in shooting victims, and how would your office deal with hate crimes and random attacks often perpetrated by mentally ill people with long criminal records? Ms. Abushi. 90 seconds. <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, it's really an honor to be here. And I think for me, as someone that has been on the other end of a decision a prosecutor has made with my father's incarceration um, as a child, and then being a civil rights attorney uh, for over a decade analyzing that decision, I think the role of the, the district attorney is to lead on structural changes, policy changes, to ensure we are accomplishing public safety through public stability. And that means making sure we're not criminalizing social inequities, but we are ensuring resources are coming into the community. You mentioned the, the rise in crimes, right? Certain crimes. And that's happening across the country. And we cannot discount the fact that oh, everybody has been experiencing this pandemic, this once in a lifetime pandemic that has just made bad situations worse. Um, and so the way to respond is to come back and put resources into the communities. Because right now here in New York City, we have five DA offices. We have the U.S. Attorney's Office, the AG's Office, the largest police force in the country, a massive budget for them as well. And we're still being told crime is rising. And that's because we've automated the system to these knee-jerk responses of prosecute and incarcerate. And what we need to be doing is actually start addressing those root causes to find out what are these cries for help? How do we center the voices of the victims, uh, including restorative justice? And how do we focus on these preventative measures? And we can do that on uh, a very basic ground level type support and cooperation. Thank you. Um, Ms. Craddock. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. I have been uh, running a public safety campaign since I started this race um, back in August. And I think public safety is of paramount importance. I think we've seen all these things rise. And I think it's a perfect combination of what has been happening with coronavirus. I think there's less people on the street. We all used to keep each other safer. And I think bail reform has played a little bit of a part of it as well. So we have this perfect storm of instances coming up. And I think we really have to work with the police, especially when it comes to gun violence. I've been adamant about this since the beginning of my campaign, that you have to restore 
the anti-crime unit of the police. And you have to have the police on the street because these are the units that got guns off the street. They were specifically formed to fight violent crime. They've been disbanded since June of 2020. And we've seen a direct correlative effect to that. And I think we really need to, to reinstate the police in the, in, and have them out there working and reinstate anti-crime with, with all constitutional protections, uh, following the law. But anti-crime is the one who got guns off the street. They have not been working since June. And I think that's where we start with public safety. And I think then if you look at the mental health crisis, of all, well, I'm out of time, so I'm going to table the rest of my answer for uh, for the next question. I appreciate it. And listen, all, all of you are uh, are adults and are experienced candidates. And if you need an extra 15 seconds for, for a given answer, please take it. And, you know, if we have to manage time later as this goes on, we'll also we'll also make that clear just so, so everyone's aware. And this is fair. Uh, Ms. Florence. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, when I started my campaign, one of the things that I started with was the the premise that everyone, no matter who you are, what you look like, how much money you have, um, you deserve to be safe at home, safe at work and safe on the street. And, you know, that can't be reserved for some neighborhoods. It can't be reserved for the rich and powerful. And that means, you know, fairness needs to be a paramount. The district attorney is the conduit to safety. Uh, that doesn't mean blessing everything that the, the NYPD does without, you know, without questioning. Uh, it means being uh, the representative, a true public servant. And that means looking at the root causes of crimes and using our resources to go after those crimes of power, um, gun violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, crimes in the workplace. But when you mention mentally ill, you know, we've had a couple of tragedies. Uh, most recently, we had the stabbings on the A train and we had the hate crime um, up on 125th Street. And, you know, what was remarkable about those is as horrible as those crimes were, they could have been prevented if we'd done the right types of screening. If we'd actually, when those those individuals had cycled through our, our criminal justice system, they had other pending cases. If we'd screened for mental health, we might have diverted these people into treatment. And it's not about, you know, dismissing the cases. I'm not, I, I'm not that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting accountability, but also understanding that, if we don't address the underlying causes of mental health, then we're going to, it's going to lead to more and more tragedies like the one we saw. Thank you. And Assemblyman Court. Thank you, Harry. Um, I'll try and answer in 90 seconds your question specifically with respect to mental health and gun-related crime. Um, I, I've been very detailed in this campaign how I would reverse Vance's policies on mental health. Right now, he requires that the person plead to the top count prior to uh, allowing somebody services. Uh, and I disagree with that policy. Uh, the per if the person is in the courtroom for the most part because of their mental health problems, the, the rational response is to treat that and not further criminalize the individual. The hope is through the good not-for-profit providers like Cases and CAPS that has a wellness center on 125th Street, that they can get to the root cause of why this individual is in the courtroom in the first place, which hopefully in felony cases would lead to either a misdemeanor charge or an outright dismissal uh, once the case is adjudicated or the mental health services. What, what Vance does right now is he interrupts that process. He frustrates that process by use of the bail laws and sending them to the corrections committee at Rikers Island where their problems gets worse. I will reverse both those policies to treat the core reason why these individuals are in the courtroom in the first place. Secondly, on gun violence, um, yes, it is a problem. Um, but what we have to do is certainly at the outset be honest about it in certain cases 
where a gun is used, I'll prosecute that case. But also we should allow for diversion practices, uh, similar to what uh, Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn has set forth, depending on circumstances. I would allow for that and put those programs in place. And lastly, you can't talk about gun violence and, and the increase in crime without talking about how do we achieve some level of restorative justice in these neighborhoods where that's happening. There is a good program uh, through the uh, Taylon Murphy Foundation that Cy Vance has finally implemented. It looks at elevated crime in a 10 block radius and provides restorative justice, wraparound services, and most importantly, hires from that community. Um, we can't only talk about the punitive or the carceral. We also have to talk about ways you know, we can get guns out of young people's hands, and this is one way we can do it. So after moderating a debate, real quick, point of procedure before I get to that, uh, can I shift to first names? Uh, I was being asked if I'm being too formal. Yeah. Every, Mine's okay fine for me. <laughs> Thank you. Very few people call me assembly member. So after uh, moderating a debate with all of you and the other candidates uh, earlier this week, New York One Errol Lewis, New York One's Errol Lewis wrote a column for the Daily News, noting that a great deal of reform has already taken place under departing DA Cy Vance, including a 60% drop in the total number of the cases disposed since 2013. So that means a lot less drugs, petty larceny, vehicle violation, and disorderly conduct cases. Are those being prosecuted at the right rate now, too often, or not often enough? And... If you think the solution, as Lewis put it, is swapping cops and courts for counseling and community services, what role should the DA's office play over the next few years in making that transition, given the vast infrastructure and funding shortfall at the moment for all that, for social services, supportive housing, mental health services, and diversionary programs? Uh, Liz, I think you're first now. Yeah, I think that we have to really accept the fact that bail reform is not working. Um, and I think for bail reform is working in the sense of a first or second arrest. Uh, when it came out, I was generally supportive of it. But I think where the, the, the details of it fall through are people who are getting arrested fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time, and nothing's happening. And they're getting desk appearance tickets, and they're going to the precinct, they're getting let out. And there's, there's not even diversion happening. What's happening now is you go to the precinct, you get pr printed, and then you get out, and then you don't even come back to court. You make a phone call to court in two months. And I think that you're not even diverting cases or you're not even bringing people in front of a judge and holding people responsible. And I, you know, I've been a defense attorney for 12 years, for, and I was a DA for six, so I've been on both sides of the courtroom. And you really need to hold people accountable. And accountability does not always mean jail, but coming in and saying, the, you have to abide by the rules. If you break the law, there's got to be some sort of consequence to all of this. And I think with bail reform, the consequences have gotten very low, and we see that playing out on the street. So I think that the job of the district attorney, it is a law enforcement job. It is not a social service job. And I think we need to you know, I'm running to run the district attorney's office, which is a law enforcement job. And I think holding people accountable is 100% what we need to be doing. And I think we have to do it fairly and evenly. But I do not think that this, you know, everything, um, we have to look at the facts of each and every case. And in looking at the facts of each and every case, we can get to the right decision. Thank you. And uh, Diana? You know, with all due respect to, to Liz, 
bail reform is not the problem. Bail is about coming back to court. So it's not supposed to be about prevention of crime or the, the increase in crime. So to suggest that because we're letting people uh, not have to uh, basically stay in to fight their case because of how much money and that's the due to the rise in crime, that, that's that's wrong. And, and frankly, I think that is uh, spreading misinformation. So what we need to be doing, though, and where I do agree with Liz, is that we do need to look at cases individually. But more importantly, we need to be looking at root causes. So on in this very debate that you cite, Harry, you know, I talked about the the candy bar. And yes, it, you know, to me, we need to hold people accountable. But, you know, if we don't figure out why he stole the candy bar in the first place, whether it was a drug problem, whether he's hungry, whether it's a kid who needs an after school program, we're going to be cycling through. Um, to me, it's it's not about lists. Um, some of my other uh, opponents on this podcast and in the race have very extensive lists. But to me, I, I don't see that as being you know workable because I did this work. So I understand that if you say you're not going to prosecute vehicular crimes, you know, anyone who's driving without a license, well, then that includes the person who perhaps lost their license because they ran someone over. That's not acceptable to me. Um, when we talk about theft, you know, it can't be that the bodega owner uh, has to give things uh, away and lose their, their ability to make a living. We need to be balancing public safety, accountability, and humanizing people and getting them the services we need. And just the last thing, because I know I'm probably over time, is that simply this. Where we're going to fund this is through the corruption cases. I've done this for many, many years. And even with with Mr. Quartz changes to the asset forfeiture law, I've, I can do the workarounds. I know how to make corporations. We're going to come back to this. We're going to come okay. back to this, this question. Okay. Okay, and so with, that's that, it. with that, uh, Dan, uh, the, the drop in cases, um, is this the right rate now? And what should the DA's office be doing in the short term, given the uh, shortfall for uh, social services, supportive housing, mental health services, diversionary programs, and so on? We, we should decline to prosecute a whole host of offenses. We should do more declinations of prosecution. We should use the social services that exist within the office itself to liaison with the not-for-profit providers through the city budget that do this work better than any diversion program that I could create through the district attorney's office. There is a fundamental distinction in this race, and that's a good thing, Harry, um, between mostly the prosecutors and the non-prosecutors. Most of the prosecutors believe that they that these instruments of carceral punishment, whatever it is, whatever the charge is, that they can use their discretion in a better, more just way than Cy Vance. Uh, that may or may not be true, but I have a different view, that the use of these instruments in and of itself are not salvageable, and they're not in the public interest of 1.6 million Manhattanites. That's the demarcation I make in this race. That's why I have a decline to prosecute list, because the best way to ensure that the courtroom is not a heavy footprint on poor people is on a whole host of things that we know punish poor people, decline to prosecute. Thank you. Uh, Dan? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the point here is addressing the root causes. The measurement shouldn't be how many cases are we prosecuting? Are, are we at a right number? Can we get to a lower number or a higher number? 
the, the goal has to be what are we doing to one, ensure that cases that shouldn't have been brought in the first place are not. And that's why I have the most comprehensive declination policy than, than anyone else in this race. These are charges that don't impact public safety, but that further destabilizes um, our communities, particularly communities of color and low-income New Yorkers. The second thing is those whose cases move forward. What are we doing to actually address the instabilities we missed before it became our crime problem? Um, and this is an opportunity where, look, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are plenty of programs in our neighborhoods, crisis management systems, GOSO, Exodus, Street Corner Resources, Life Camp, so many different things where the community is doing their part in addressing these instabilities. Um, we have to ensure that there's funding, whether we get um, uh, settlement funding in the district attorney's office that's discretionary that we can dole out to these organizations to help us address these root causes, um, or we shrink the footprint of our office instead of trying to in-house a lot of these programs because the DA's office is not a treatment center, it's not a counseling center. Um, we can instead um, advocate to have these other groups that are doing this work uh, be funded and see them as our partners. Because all of the things that you mentioned in your question from supportive housing to mental health to diversionary programs, the goal are to address these root causes, to focus on that preventative measures. Thank you. Dan, we, we, we had a bit of a timekeeping error and we cut you off early there. So if, if you would like to continue now, I apologize and please do. Otherwise, we'll try to make up as, as this goes on. I, I reserve to use those eight to 10 seconds in a subsequent hour. You're, um, if I would like to, Ms. Warren, uh, Diana said something about me that I would like to go back to, you know, part and parcel of any bail argument, because I've been doing them for 12 years, is that people don't get rearrested while out on bail. So I think that that's always been part of bail and we have to acknowledge that. So if you get rearrested while you have an open case, I think that changes the landscape of what we're talking about. Second of all, I am the only candidate in this race who has never had a decline to prosecute list. I do not have one. I do not think that that is the proper exercise of prosecutorial discretion. It should be applied on a case-by-case -case basis. But getting rearrested is a violation of the bail. Diana, do you want to respond? As it is under bail reform, actually. If you get rearrested, that does put, make you bail eligible. So thanks. All right. So now we're going to move on. You all have two minutes to answer this next question. Diana, I'm going to start with you. What current serving DA would you cite as a model for your office? And what specific mistakes have you seen other progressive DAs make? And how would you avoid them in Manhattan? Um, it's hard to say one current serving DA. Um, I don't have one particular DA that I can think of that I think is uh, a model. I think that there is a lots of, of pieces of, of different district attorneys around the country who um, have done some good things. So, for example, I think that uh, the transparency data dashboard that I believe was started in Philadelphia by uh, Larry Krasner and, and now has maybe with tech uh, Chesabudin has done over in San Francisco. I think that's an incredible advancement. And I think it, it's, it serves to build trust in our systems. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I forgot what the second part of the question was. So Apologies. What are, what, no worries. What are some mistakes you've seen other progressive DAs make and how would you avoid them in Manhattan? 
Ah, thank you. Yes, I think that it's mainly, I think actually it, it sort of dovetails on what we've been talking about. I think when you just come up with lists, especially if you haven't done the work, um, it's very easy to sort of, you know, sweep, you know, all the good with the bad together. So again, in my examples in my other answer, uh, when we say, you know, definitively, we're not going to charge anyone with, you know, driving without a license, you know, I generally think that's a good idea, but there are going to be cases where if someone has hurt someone, with a you know who's now defying the law and and still driving that's an example of someone who should be prosecuted so what we need i think the mistakes are when you go in with too broad of an under you know sort of a desire to just decline without being nuanced to me if you understand the system you can be nuanced and you can reform it that's what i offer okay thank you dan uh who would you use as a model and what other mistakes have you seen folks make and how would you avoid them in Manhattan? Um, Rachel Rollins in Boston and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Rachel Rollins in Boston really attacked the root causes of poverty that lead so many people to be in the courtroom. Um, A a really excellent declination policy, a reduction of charge policy. Um, I know many of the progressive candidates across this country model them on what she has done in Boston and uh, I would put myself in that camp as well. Uh, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, because he had the courage of his conviction within the first year of this office, either through uh, retirements of, or asking people to leave. And I take no glee if I were the DA to have to do that um, was a 28 percent turnover in the Philadelphia DA's office. That would be roughly about 160 Manhattan ADAs. And I'm not suggesting there's a quota or exact number. But if you're truly going to transform this office, then it's going to take changes well beyond the leadership team. Um, systemic changes within the office, both in recruitment and in current personnel. And I guess if I would give an alternative argument, um, I would look no further than the boundaries of New York County, uh, because Mr. Vance at one time called himself a progressive prosecutor, um, and he has not. Um, He has shifted as he has seen fit to do. And that is the one thing you can never do as a district attorney. Um, You cannot charge or not charge somebody based upon what the newspapers are saying or how what your public standing is. Uh, If you want a job that's about popularity or being popular, this is not the one to run for. Um, This job to do it right, to reform this office, you have to accept the level of conflict in your life. And I think that's one of the arguments of my candidacy. I'm the only one who stood on the ballot six times in the last 10 years and had to answer before actual constituents for votes I've taken, for things I've said, both popular and unpopular. Great, thank you. Tahani? Well, um, I, I agree with my colleagues here that that uh, every progressive or decarceral district attorney has had some good policies. I think two folks that stand out to me uh, is D.A. Rollins and D.A. Gascon, um, who's just newly elected in L.A. And I think for Gascon, uh, he really is working to limit those exceptions that Diana was referencing, because I think when you want to come out with a strong policy and you come out with these lists, not because you wake up one morning and you're just bored, but because you look at the data and you look at how these charges have impacted communities of color. Does it impact public safety? Do we do more damage by criminalizing these people, holding their boots and then saying, okay, now go pull yourself up by your bootstraps. 
And then more importantly, what's a better way to handle it? If you remove the criminal penalties, that doesn't mean that there's no longer accountability. What it means is that we found a smarter, more responsive way to address the instabilities, focus on rehabilitation uh, and prevention. And so I think uh, George Cascone has done a good job of having those difficult conversations, particularly around hate crimes um, and balancing the need for communities to be safe and respected and to include restorative justice and accountability there. And I think D.A. Rollins also did an exceptionally well job of working with the defense bar uh, in a lot of her policies, getting buy-ins from the ADAs in her office and trying to balance that line of working with their local law enforcement agency while also continuing to to hold them accountable. And I think Chesa Boudin has done a great job on that front as well, saying, um, I know we need to work for the police. Um, but what about some mistakes that progressive DAs have made and how would you yeah. them in Manhattan? Um, I think... You know, I wouldn't call them necessarily mistakes. I think we're still on that new horizon of changing the from the tough on crime mentality to how do we be decarceral and more responsive. And I think, you know, it's it's a matter of how much do you do how fast. I think Krasner having to deal with a large turnover and then instilling these policies caused a lot of uh, distractions and, and pushback and delay. Uh, And I think all prosecutors are going to face that when you come in with this new mentality and structural change, you try to move a lot of different parts um, in such a short amount of time. And then thinking about reelection can bog down the process. Great. Thank you. And Liz, current DAs that you'd cite as a model for your office and specific mistakes you've seen other progressive DAs make and how you'd avoid it. I I think David Soros and Madeline Singus, who are running offices where where they are doing the work and, and the office isn't about them. The office is about doing the work that they were elected to do, which is, you know, as part of law enforcement to prosecute crimes fairly and evenly. And I think that the progressive DAs make the, the big mistake that they make is playing politics with people's lives and not listening to victims. I think like progressive DAs go in there with, I'm going to have this policy, and I'm going to have that policy, and I'm going to day one have all these things that I'm going to do before they've heard one fact of a case. And I think that that's a problem because I think 21 years of doing cases, both sides of the courtroom, the facts matter on each and every case. And you have to listen to those facts. You have to listen to those facts objectively and and really kind of make decisions about what's going on. And I think progressive prosecutors have forced political agendas in, in, in cases where it shouldn't be about politics, it should be about the victim, the victim's voice, and what's going on. You know, and I've said this before in other forums, I've learned as a defense attorney, as a prosecutor, you listen, and you have to make a lot of decisions. But as a defense attorney, you really listen. And, and listening for the past 12 years, there are bad decisions, there are bad days, there are bad acts, and there are bad circumstances. And you have to prosecute accordingly. And that starts with listening to the facts and listening to what's going on in each case. So that's the problem with progressive prosecutors is that they're coming in with an agenda of this is what I'm going to do to get a certain result. And it's like, we have to do it on a case-by-case basis. Thank you. Okay, so this next question, Dan, I'll start with you. Uh, We've broached this already, but many of you have listed crimes you would not prosecute. So please explain your reasoning there and why you see that there's a decision for a prosecutor to make rather than lawmakers, or why you think those lists are a mistake. 
And speaking of lawmakers, are there additional steps the DA needs to take to comply with the new discovery and bail laws? And would you push Albany for any changes to them? Dan, we'll start with you. Yes. Well, let's talk about the bail laws. And and obviously, Ms. Crotty and I have a a disagreement on this. Um, um, But more importantly, I'm the only member of the legislature that has ever written uh, a piece of legislation on bail, and that was to end cash bail completely. I supported the reforms of the bail law and voted against the rollbacks of the bail reform. Let's be clear on the facts. Um, Nothing that has happened on bail and the reforms of the bail law have anything to do with recidivism rates. And the suggestion to the contrary is just factually inaccurate. But the main point is, uh, in the last 25 years in the legislature, there have been two pieces of legislation that have eliminated any section of the penal law. And I've written both of them. And it really goes to the heart that the law has been the wedge, the broken windows policing and the broken windows prosecution as an extension of that policing, has been the targeted practices uh, that have really afflicted in an adverse way communities of color. So uh, that's what my focus has been on the legislature. As district attorney, I will certainly be involved in the legislative process. And I think objectively amongst the seven of us, there's no one who's going to be more successful in pushing forth an agenda in Albany where so many of the real changes will be made, so many things that can happen that can help me. By one example, expungement. Uh, By really undoing the harm that Vance has caused over the last 11 years by the expansion of prosecution. Um, I know Harry gave some of the statistics before of less prosecution, but that's only a new phenomenon by Mr. Vance. Um, He has sent more people to jail through bail or otherwise than all the other district attorneys, any of them in New York City. He has been harmful. He has been punitive. And I've been the one standing up to him well before 10 for 10 years before it was easy or popular. I mean, there will be new legislation that has to be passed on parole reform, on expungement, and I will be at the forefront of that effort, both in this session, today, right now, as we speak in Albany, and going forward as a district attorney who will not caucus with the District Attorneys Association, who will be a voice against that association, which has hurt communities throughout Manhattan for the better part of the last two decades. Thank you. Tahani? Um, well, you know, my declination list was, uh, came together by working co-governance with a lot of these reentry programs, preventative measure programs, our defense bar, civil rights attorneys, because the decision a prosecutor has to make when you talk about public safety, we have to weigh the risks on the destabilization in the communities. So the charges we came up with not only don't really impact public safety, but the risks associated with them is, one, they target our youth, they target people of color. A lot of these are unfair arrests. That's why a good chunk of these cases get dismissed from the outset, um, even without a declination policy. Things like decriminalizing sex work, um, declining a small possession of marijuana, and then expanding that to include things like decriminalizing uh, recreational possession and use of all drugs. Because when we talk about why are we doing this? Why are we processing these charges? Like Liz said earlier, some people are in and out of jail four, five, six times. Well, did you think the seventh time will be different? These are a lot of taxpayer money that's being spent on this, and we're completely missing the underlying issue and just responding with this automation of, well, I'll prosecute and incarcerate and then hope somebody just learns their lesson. And so for me, all of the charges on their list are specifically trying to address socioeconomic issues that are being criminalized, giving our youth second chances, support and and services to help them make better choices um, and are into second chances. 
And I think that for me, in regards to uh, bail reform, it's very important that the district attorney be a leader in open file discovery to ensure that all exculpatory evidence is turned over to the defense, to make sure that people aren't coerced into pleas uh, that are not subject to hearing and trial taxes and are not penalized for exercising their constitutional rights to have a jury trial. Um, for me, you know, my father was sentenced to 22 years. The deal on the table before trial was about seven years. And because he took it to trial, he, he was, you know, that tax was part of it. And so we shouldn't intimidate and coerce pleas. Um, we should, we should take the time to understand why these cases are being prosecuted and how we can ensure that we're accomplishing public safety through public stability. Thank you. Liz, I just want to repeat the question for you and Diana, just in case, since it's been a minute. Um, many of you have listed the crimes you would not prosecute. Please explain your reasoning there and why you see that a decision uh, for a prosecutor to make rather than lawmakers and why you think those lists are a mistake or not. And, and also, are there additional steps the DA needs to take to comply with the new discovery and bail laws? And would you push Albany for any changes to them? Yeah, I, well, as I said before, I do not have a decline to prosecute list. And I just think we need to have real conversations about what's going on in the building already. There are diversion programs. It's set up to say, oh, if we get to the root cause, then people will stop doing that. That's just not the case. People go out and reoffend, and they have to be held accountable. And the accountability comes with saying, you shouldn't be doing this. And the root cause, yeah, you got to try and get to it. But what if the person doesn't want to get to the root cause? Then where are you? And, and you know, I feel it's ironic that Dan Court is a lawmaker and he makes laws supposedly in his current job. And now it has the longest declination list, you know, decline to prosecute. Well, you're in a position where you can actually change the laws and you're not acknowledging that. You're just saying, I'm not going to prosecute these cases. Doesn't really make sense. I think the discovery law and I think the discovery and bail reform, I think bail reform, as I said before, has to be uh, changed so that people um, who who are breaking laws on a repeated basis are held somewhat accountable, that judges can see what happens with uh, public safety. And if people are going to going out there and be a risk to public safety, that we can be able to consider that standard. I'm not talking on a first or second arrest. I'm talking third, fourth, fifth, sixth arrest. And I think for discovery, we I've talked about this on my website, we need to have a discovery bureau where analysts are hired to help facilitate discovery um, and really get the discovery out to defense attorneys. But I think, especially in the higher level cases of homicides, rape cases, you know, felony assaults, giving over witness information within 15 days is highly, highly problematic. Um, you can get a protective order, but I think that you do not have to give over who that witness is because th this is a longer question, but it, it really goes to, they report a lot of times on clearance rates and clearance rates of cases. And I think that the discovery form is a direct correlative in public trust and protecting witness protection and victims protection for having to turn over certain information, especially when crimes have happened in certain neighborhoods and people are hesitant to come forward to law enforcement to testify against their neighbors and people who they know from the neighborhood. And I think these are big problems that we have to talk to. I completely support open file discovery, but I do think we have to make um, some of those changes in Albany. And Diana. Ms. Greer, can I respond? Because uh, 
Miss Crotty brought up my name or I can let's wait. have let's have Diana uh, answer the question and then you'll have uh, 30 seconds to respond to Liz. Sure. You never know. Maybe I'll call you out, too, and you could do two for one. <laughs> um, so thank you. Yeah. I mean, look, I have a very limited list. Um, that's because it comes out of my work. So for example, I know that marijuana possession, that came out of the fact that, look, we now have marijuana legalization and we know that marijuana possession has been, you know, unevenly enforced. Frankly, it's been enforced uh, for black and brown communities and, you know, white communities, it's been effectively legal. Um, but then we talk about consensual sex work. And the reason that I, I came to full decriminalization is because I care about trafficking. And I understand that when I've done a trafficking work in the labor space, that it was nearly impossible to bring those cases because of the lack of trust. And the people that were being labor trafficked, for the most part, weren't violating the law. They sometimes uh, didn't have immigration status uh, that made them hesitant to come forward. But when you couple the fact that the victims of trafficking are also considered criminals, that's why I support not prosecuting consensual sex work and making sure that we can support them. But now let's talk about bail and, and discovery laws. Once again, we have to be clear, bail, and I think, you know, Dan said it earlier, and I need to say it again, the bail uh, reform laws have nothing to do with the, the crime rate. And to suggest otherwise, to suggest, again, I'm going to call you out, Liz, it is not correct to say that people are being arrested and, and, and being uh, let out and therefore they're committing more crimes. It's just not true. Bail, and you know this, Liz, because you worked in the DA's office for five of the years of my 20. And you know that we never had a dangerousness standard and it was always about whether you were a, a flight risk or not. And yes, if someone gets rearrested, that now puts makes the male eligible. But here's the thing. We, what the, the mistake, and here's where I do call out Dan, the mistake of the legislature was in changing bail reform and changing these. It was without any sort of input with the people who are doing the work. So when you change bail and it is absolutely okay and, 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 and morally correct to take money out of it, you have to fund an alternate system. If you don't, then you have what we have now and you, and you frankly have people being able to spread this information that it's about the crime rate. So I didn't get to discovery. I'm sure I'll get to it in another answer, but I will say this. We need to work with legislators and the people that are doing the work on the ground need to be communication with their legislators. That's what I did as a prosecutor. I wrote wage theft bills. I wrote bills based on my work. Thank you. And so uh, we'll give Dan, you'll get 30 seconds. And Liz, if you'd like, you get 30 seconds as well to respond. I, I got I got attacked by two two of my opponents, so I'll, I'll take a little more. Time. <laughs> You'll get that eight seconds that you gave up. Um, yeah, I'll take the I'll take thirty eight <laughs> seconds. Um, <laughs> but I'll get specific to the point. Um, what Miss Crotty referred to, um, Liz has basically run a campaign as a strict constructionist. That what the law says and what it's written. Well, I have to apply it. I'm district attorney. Yet in her answer, she went on for about thirty seconds about how to change protective order motions so she could get around the existing discovery law. And then she talked about bail reform and what she didn't agree with in the possible ways, essentially, sub Rosa, to not apply to uh, the bail reforms that I fought for in Albany, the discovery laws that I voted for and stood before my constituents and got reelected for. So you really can't have it both ways, Liz. If this is the law and you're saying I apply the law, that's the DA's job and the law enforcement, then I'm not sure why you spend as much time as you do talking about discovery laws and bail reforms and what you don't agree with and how you would possibly not apply it. To Diana's point, um, that part of what you said, Diana, is inaccurate in 
Uh, it took 47 years to change the bail laws. There was no lack of community involvement, defender involvement, prosecutorial involvement. And secondly, another point, you're factually inaccurate. When we passed bu bail reform and different times we passed it, we did put more money into the system. That's a matter of fact through the state budget. So those are two factual inaccuracies in your, in your prior critique of me. And uh, I think I've used up my time. Liz? Yeah, I think that the, the, the bail reform as written, I think what you have to see what is going on. The, the people um, don't understand. Used to be you would go and you would get arrested and you would put be put through the system. It was a very limited desk appearance ticket. Now everybody gets a desk appearance ticket on all misdemeanors except a, a handful of carve outs and low level felonies. And so what happens is they go to the precinct and they get they get released after they're printed and they come back to, you know, two months later. And then it, there's a big problem in the backlog because there's people who have open cases and open cases in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Bronx, all at one time. And this is what's happening because of bail reform. And there is there, you know, they talk about a clarity principle and no one ever talks really about deterrence in this case. And the clarity principle is that people don't, when they get arrested, do not think, oh, I'm going to get 30 days, six months, two to four. They're thinking, I don't want to spend the next 24 hours in jail. It's a very immediate response. And that is the deterrent effect of on a lot of cases of an, an arrest. Now, Dan, I am I am running a public safety campaign and I am running to be the district attorney who evenly applies the law. You're 100% right. But I am not trying to argue it both ways. I'm trying to be responsive to the problems that we are seeing as everyday New Yorkers out on the street. And I'm not trying to circumvent the law. I'm trying to protect victims and witnesses so that we can use the law in order to protect them. All right. Alex, do you want to uh, jump in here? And uh, we may come back to this. We've got, we've got some additional questions we'd love to get to in the remaining few minutes here. And thank you all again for uh, taking the time and for a lively conversation. Uh, thanks, Harry. It came out this year that the Staten Island District Attorney's Office has been paying for Clearview AI's facial recognition program. And would your office have updated policies for new and intrusive technologies that would cover facial recognition, DNA databases, however they were collected, digital dragnet uh, reverse search warrants and collect information from all cell phone users in a geographic area that the Manhattan DA has used under Vanced and so on. Geofence warrants, if that wasn't clear. I guess we'll start with Tahani. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think this is uh, an extremely problematic phenomenon that DA's offices have been using to automate their decision-making and automate the outcomes of their decisions. And so you end up with things like the DNA database, the gang database that have served to pre-criminalize people um, and trigger these I-cards, um, allow for pretextual stops by law enforcement, and then automatic begin people off with um, having done something criminal because these are attenuated associations. Um, and you can take the gang database, for instance, where just living on the block of, of somebody who may be associated with the gang or wearing the same color triggers that association and, and includes you in the gang database. And it's happening to our youth um, at just a younger and younger age. So 
uh, I'm advocating to dismantle all of those systems. And then when we talk about facial recognition, we know that these kinds of blanket automated systems are inherently racist. I mean, we know that the facial recognition systems have been misidentifying people of color more and more. And so when you talk about wrongful convictions, the way to uh, avoid these wrongful convictions is to stop setting up systems in the first place that lead to them. Um, and we have to ensure that people are aware that these things are happening, that there is consent, that the defense has access to it, and that these databases uh, are known. For Staten Island, it's definitely a more conservative jurisdiction, uh, one that's unapologetic in the use of these types of systems. Um, but the rest of the district attorney's offices need to be more vocal about what this data collection uh, means for the public uh, and how it latches on to our histories for generations to come and, and the fault that it creates. So um, I, I would definitely um, move to uh, move us away from relying on these uh, technologies and make sure that things like the gang and the DNA database are done away with. Thank you. Uh, going to Liz? Sure. I mean, I think that the DA's offices use, and it's, it's a big question in the 21st century, is, is going to be how do we use digital data, new forms of data in prosecuting cases? And I think that this is, is very much a 21st century problem. Um, and I think it's going to be a lot of exhaustive discussions on how to do it and, and what are the fair and accurate ways to do this. And I think precision um, prosecutions and data-driven prosecutions have their time and place. Again, I'm going to revert to my the facts of every case matter. Uh, and, and I think, but I think what we have to do is we're looking at these databases um, and how they're used. I think that they have to be used based on very reliable information, uh, based on past convictions. And I think they need to be used in order to prosecute, um, especially like in long-term investigations um, and complex investigations, gang, uh, drug conspiracies. They, they need to be used to investigate up. Um, and I think that that's where they're very, really the most helpful and prosecuting, investigating up the chain of command and not down the chain of command. Uh, sometimes in prosecutions, especially in federal drug prosecutions, uh, they like to get all the street dealers up and say, what can you tell me? And then kind of go up. And I think that what has to really work is using these, this intelligence driven investigation and new forms of investigation evidence and how do we get them, how do we collect it fairly and accurately constitutionally and really use it in corroborative ways um, to to prosecute up, not down. Thank you. Uh, Diana? You know, this is where experience matters. You know, I've been a prosecutor. I've been a prosecutor for 25 years and I've been there, you know, since <laughs> the, the last century. So I've seen some of these technologies when they were very flimsy and I've seen how they've developed. And the one sort of constant for me is, and I'll use an example of, uh, it wasn't uh, one of the listed ones, but GPS warrants. Um, there was a time where uh, it wasn't required. Um, and I remember very early on using sort of my own sort of moral compass saying, well, look, it's it's invasive. We're we're collecting information. I don't care that we don't technically need a warrant. Let's do a warrant. Like we have probable cause. We're not just picking cars. You know, we're doing an investigation based on facts. And so, you know, ha following that instinct, 
right, to actually, you know, go to a judge and apply for a warrant, even when we didn't necessarily need one based on new technology, ended up serving me incredibly well when, of course, the law followed later. Sometimes the law is not the most up to date. So some of the technologies you mentioned, um, you know, facial recognition, things like that, you know, uh, as, as Tahani said, it, sometimes they are um, inaccurate and, and they should never be a, a sole basis. Um, they can be a tool, um, but they need to be heavily corroborated. So, you know, I think the actual question is, are you going to update your policies and very specific? So I don't, you know, agree with saying we're just not going to use them because of their inherent flaws. But I also don't agree that we're going to rely on them. Perhaps I don't know how Staten Island is using them, but we need to use them as a part and parcel and we need to have policies that are strict. And again, not based on the technology that exists now or even the law that exists now, but based on our own senses of fairness and uh, the way the law should be implemented. Thank you. Dan. I'm not going to use them because of their inherent flaws. This is stop and frisk by a different name. And the reason why we know that is because Ray Kelly, the police commissioner at that time, basically said so. When stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional by the federal courts uh, in New York, uh, what did the NYPD and certain district attorneys replace them with? Replace them with this intelligence-driven model. Um, that is a fact. It's you can look back to NYPD Commissioner Kelly, they called it Operation Crew Cut or something of that nature. And it's an intelligence gathering operation. Um, and not on my constituents on the east side of Manhattan, but with people I grew up with in Washington Heights or in East Harlem or Central Harlem or the Lower East Side. They're the ones that are targeted. Um, and there really is no way to use these tools in a narrow way that's constitutionally permissible. And that's why I wrote legislation outlawing the use of geofence warrants. It's a fishing expedition. It violates a Fourth Amendment concept on, we, on a probable causes based on individuality, not longitude and la, uh, longitude lines on the east side of Manhattan where Cy Vance used it. Um, and also uh, to the other point about false positives when it comes to facial recognition against uh, African-American. We know that is fact. So how can I in good conscience use these? I won't. And this is where, again, to my point, uh, there are certain areas in this office where bright lines are needed, um, where the instruments in them, in and of themselves, are not salvageable and can't be used in a race-neutral way. This is one of these areas. I won't use them. Thank you. So I know some of you have hard outs, and we're very appreciative for everyone's time. Our final question here, and I hope you can use this, I think, to sweep, if you'd like to, in, into your vision broadly, is what steps would you take to ensure the reliability of officer testimony? specifically involving existing lists of unreliable officers and any new ones that your office would generate? And do you have any plans for winning back the trust a rank-and-file police officer is concerned the prosecutors no longer have their back? Or if not, to avert the type of soft slowdowns New York and many other cities have seen in recent years? Uh, thank you all again, and we'll start here with Liz. Right, well, uh I have my answer to this question. I was endorsed this morning by the detectives union, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains union. Um, I want to work with the police in order to make uh, New York City a safer place. And I understand fundamentally from both sides of the courtroom that working with the police is the way to do this. Um, and having a working relationship where accountability is going to come across in my district attorney's office that I lead in every aspect of it, from the prosecutors to the police 
and to defendants. And, you know, we all have to be accountable. And, uh, and that's the kind of office I want to lead. And I think that working with the police is, is how to do it. And that's what I know from having been a prosecutor. And that's what I understand having been a defense attorney. Um, so I think that that's really where it starts. And I, I'm really was uh, pleased with the endorsement today. It, it's something I take proudly. And I think it's a stance on how to move uh, this all forward in public safety for everyone in every neighborhood here in, in New York. I mean, you know, if you look at it, the 23rd, the 25th, 32nd precincts, they go up the east side starting in Spanish Harlem. Crime rate has doubled. Homicides, shootings, car thefts, felony assaults, and, and misdemeanor crimes. And I think people in every neighborhood want to feel safe. And I know that there are problems with over-policing, but I understand that there, there are big problems with under-policing. We have to get the balance right, and we have to work with the police to do that. We also have to work with the communities to do that and be in the communities and, and set up communication so that everyone can be at the same table, prosecutors, police, and the community. And I think working with the police and having their endorsement is the kind of office that I want to lead, and that's that's where I am. Thank you so much. Dehany, uh, would you like to uh, jump in here? Yeah, I'm the exact opposite. I don't think the prosecutors need to have police's back. That's not what this job is about. Police officers can carry a weapon, discharge a weapon, can restrict our freedoms, can search and seize our bodies and our homes, um, can uh, arrest us, present us to the system, are usually the single source of evidence for a lot of these cases. I mean, this is long-term damage. And as a civil rights attorney that's focused on cases of uh, police violence and excessive force. Uh, I, I think it's dangerous to say that prosecutors have to have our backs because our job is not to cover for bad policings. And honestly, uh, this list, okay, yeah, we know that you're going to put some officers on this list who lie, but it's more than that, right? You're, look at just the, the detective the other day, Franco, who uh, offices across the city, DAs and the special narcotics prosecutor had to vacate hundreds of cases that he lied in to secure these convictions. Uh, are those the backs that we want to have? Because that's not what this this office is about. So for me and, and my um, along with my declination policy, I have a very comprehensive police accountability policy where we're going to scrap the ECAB unit, establish an arrest review unit and dissect that moment an officer comes into contact with a civilian. And we're going to do more than disclose a few times that this officer has lied, but we're going to talk about what are their backgrounds in terms of civil lawsuits, excessive force, their IAB files, um, their misconduct. What is the source of this evidence? How did it come to be? Um, who is the, the What is the, the demographics of the people that this officer has been in contact and has been arresting throughout their career? Because these are just extremely important questions. And I think that for these positions of public trust, both prosecutor and police officer, they have to be held to that high standard. And there's just no exception in my mind. So in terms of um, a relationship with the police, look, I've sued our last few police commissioners and then sat across the table and rewrote their policy. There are people behind these decisions. We work with the police, not for the police. And all of us have to be at all times ensuring the safety and stability of the public and put no badger bank account above the law. It's just very simple. Thank you so much. Diana. You know, for me, it's not about, you know, having someone's back or not. It's about accountability. And it's about understanding that, you know, if you've worked with police for as long as I have, you understand that 
there is no group that is more frustrated by the lack of accountability for bad policing uh, because it undermines their job. It makes their job that much harder. And I think that all people should want to get together and make sure that we can rebuild trust in law enforcement. So what that means is holding those bad police officers accountable. And the way I aim to do that is through being really transparent and through proactively doing the cases. So we've just had a 50 AD classified. And what we can do is just like we have the the 10 worst landlords, we can go after the 10 worst police officers. We can look in the database. This isn't going to undermine trust uh, by the rank and file police. It's going to increase it because they'll understand that this is not open season on police. It's open season on bad policing. And once you you eliminate those those the worst you know the worst people that have not who have not been held accountable that still sit in a police force, we're all going to feel better. Uh, we're all going to trust, and we're going to have a better we're going to have a better police uh, department. So that that's how I approach it. And I just ultimately feel like anyone who takes this job must be looking uh, at policing in a holistic way because at the end of the day, we do need police. We need police to solve our shootings and our rapes and our domestic violence, we need them to come at three o'clock in the morning when something terrible has happened. But we, right now, it has been very difficult. Last thing I'll say is that, you know, when I was the chief of the construction fraud task force, I went out to a different precincts and I trained police officers about ways to spot crimes that ultimately they didn't used to think were, were part of their job, like wage theft. And so something like a fight on Friday afternoon might be a, fr- a fight on payday, and it's more about wage theft. And so the idea is we want police to be moving into the crimes that really truly do make us safer, uh, whether it's in the workplace, at home, or on the street. Thank you so much. Uh, Dan, you have the uh, the last word here. Police accountability is public safety, and I've knocked on thousands of doors throughout Manhattan, and that it may be singularly an important issue to so many people that I've met. Uh, yes, they don't want the police to be uh, not physically on the street, but they want different and better policing. Um, and they want them in their courtyards, but they don't want them uh, acting in an aggressive way to their grandsons or granddaughters uh, out on the street. And that's something that I must ensure as district attorney, and I will. Um, I think the premise, though, the question, Harry, is uh, do elected officials like me, or if I'm district attorney, do we have to say and do things that will ingratiate ourselves to the NYPD that they'll do their job in a better way, that they'll get out of the police cars and get out on the street and show in themselves. And I fundamentally reject that notion. Would we ever accept the premise that garbage collectors would not have to pick up the garbage because they disagreed with the recycling laws or they didn't feel that the compost laws that the city council passed uh, were acceptable? Why should we accept that as district attorney? I don't, and I won't. If I win this race, if I win this primary, then I've put very specifically what I would do before the voters. Uh, Dermot Shea has never stood before the voters um, and put his credentials before. So there's a very big difference between whoever gets elected next district attorney with what they've been very direct about what they're going to do and what they're not going to do against an unelected commissioner. That That is the way I see the matter and, and that the primary thing is police accountability and has to be. Yes, we work with the officers to make cases and I'll continue to do that. But when they step over the line, when they fill out false instruments, when they're untruthful in their verbal statements in the early case assessment bureau, where they engage in excessive force like police officer Garcia on East 9th Street and Avenue C, then I'll prosecute them. Thank you to uh, to all of you for a, a lively and spirited hour. 
and good luck to all of you in the coming election, which is a super weird one, as you guys all know better than us, <laughs> right? There's no ranked choice voting. There's no possible runoff. Um, you can all collect roughly up to a bajillion dollars per donor, uh, and there's almost no polling. So so we'll be watching, and uh, thank you. We appreciate you, and um, um, good luck on the trail. Yes. <laughs> thank you thank you so much this was wonderful hey really appreciate it thank you all yeah this is great thank you all best of luck on june 22nd mm-hmm. thank, thank you, you. Bye-bye. bye 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 f-a-q f-a-q nyc is a production of racket media and a proud member of the brickhouse cooperative of independent journalists and artists we're headquartered at nyu's mcsilver institute for poverty policy and research and recorded this week from the boroughs of brooklyn and manhattan a special thank you to our four guests this week, to Hani Abushi, Liz Crotty, Diana Florence, and Assemblyman Dan Court. And tune in next week for all of the Manhattan DA candidates you didn't hear this week. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>